0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.
1: I want to spend some time this morning on a, a subject that I've been reflecting on a lot. It has uh, a role in a book that I'm writing. It's In fact, I'm going to read a chapter that is in draft and it'll give you a chance to contribute and critique what I'm working on. But um, what I'll do is uh, pray and then I'm going to read a couple of scriptures and the scriptures and the overall uh, subject matter tie in actually to this sermon that I'll be preaching in the worship service. So let's, let's pray and start. Father, thank you for a beautiful morning, and we're grateful for the opportunity to gather in this way and reflect on important matters. And uh, we ask you, Lord, to bless uh, the the uh, the conduct of this class, and may we be able to be able to get something uh, worthwhile out of it that helps us to glorify you in our lives. In Christ's name, Amen. So, um, I've been working on. A number of books, but the one that I'm kind of under the gun to finish is entitled. Its working title is "How to Defeat the" or "How to Defeat Totalitarianism 2.0 in Your Spare Time." I've I've been working on kind of different titles. That's that's the one I've decided to use, or at least at this moment. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I think it has puzzled a lot of folks is. Uh, the controversy surrounding uh, names and words that we see in our society. Have you noticed that there's been a lot of uh, attention given to subjects, uh, the subject matter of like pronouns and stuff, and what uh, that all is getting at? Um, It's actually something that uh, we've got a lot of biblical material to, to, to draw on, to reflect on in terms of its significance. So I want to take you to a couple of passages in Genesis where naming is uh, in view or is the subject of the passage or addressed in a passage. First is Genesis chapter 2, and uh, beginning at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now the next passage uh, is found in uh, the 11th chapter of Genesis. And there we see not just a, a single person, but an entire community. And the subject of language is again addressed. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower at its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose uh, to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Okay, naming. It's not an insignificant thing. It's addressed in the Bible. So what I want to do is I'm going to do some reading here, and uh, at different points I'll stop. Maybe I'll get through the whole chapter, maybe I won't. This is in process, so this is a draft. So express, you know, there's some roughness to it. So there'll be some you know, logical gaps, things that need to be filled in. That's part of the process. Anyway, so one of the titles I've considered for this, uh, for this chapter is uh, the War of the Words. Um, Something to to consider is when we think about totalitarian regimes, propaganda is pretty important. Propaganda is about messaging, right? It's about language and what we do with language. Uh, And uh, that's worth considering as well. But what makes it possible for us to even uh, open up ourselves to the prospect of propaganda, which is in some sense a kind of useful lie, right? That's what propaganda tends to be associated with, useful lies at least useful from the standpoint of the regime. So how did that come about? How does it work? So what's in a name? According to the people fighting over them, quite a lot. And the Bible agrees, and while Scripture doesn't spell it all out, we are given valuable information about what names are for. The place to begin is with the first human words. According to materialists, our words don't actually have any basis in the nature of things. Consequently, when we speak, we say more about ourselves than we say about anything else. And at a superficial level, the first human words recorded in the Bible seem to confirm this. But if you read a little further, you can see something else at work. What am I alluding to? Well, contemporary language theory—if you were to, you know, sort of explore, you know, what's going on with it, Noam Chomsky and all of that—there's a sense in which uh, it's believed to be quite arbitrary that human language is just simply uh, a kind of social convention. It doesn't have any basis in the, re, sort of the actual structure of things or the nature of things. But that's not the way people in antiquity thought about it at all. According to the story, the Lord brought animals to Adam to see what he would call them, and we're told that whatever he called an animal, that was his name. The story seems almost childish until you consider the implications. In the background is the command to take dominion. And depending on how you understand that, things could go in wildly different directions. Since materialists don't see a transcendent origin to anything, that means that we must supply the meaning. So when it comes to naming, we impose meaning onto the things that are essentially meaningless. Naming them can't help uh, but serve the needs and purposes of the people doing the naming and words become tools to do that. When it comes to politics, uh, words are used to control people, just like they're used to control anything else. Fortunately, many materialists don't follow the logic materialism lockstep to totalitarianism, but that doesn't mean materialism doesn't lend itself to it. It just means that there's more to materialists than materialism. Speaking of Adam, though, What was he talking about when he used names? According to the backstory in Genesis, the world itself had been spoken into existence. Remember, opening chapter of Genesis in the beginning. God said, and that meant that the animals had already been spoken for. Perhaps it's even fair to say they'd already been named. If that's the case, What does it mean? What do Adam's names do? Do they overwrite what God has already said when he spoke things into existence? Or are Adam's names in some sense based on what he sees in the animals? Hopefully you can see that a great deal depends on how that question is answered. It's the difference between dominion and domination. Attempts to understand language from a purely materialist point of view inevitably run into problems. That's because materialism is good at measuring quantities, but it is hopeless when it comes to quality. The most important things in life, though, can't be quantified. Value isn't measured merely by how much, but more importantly, by how good. We all have an intuitive sense of value. For example, when we say a child is valuable, we're saying something Only the most pig-headed materialists could deny. And by the way, there are some of those out there. Still, it's hard to measure a child's value, unless you're talking about market value. But again, that misses the point spectacularly. It's a matter of quality as opposed to quantity. And getting back to the subject at hand, we see an assessment of quality when Adam names his wife. First, he recognizes something of himself in her. She is bone of his bones, yet she's someone else. Uh, She had her start in his body, but now there she is looking back at him. And this is why he called her woman, a name which denotes something common yet different. Later, when the difference is elaborated upon, Uh, He gives her the name Eve, because she has a purpose that he doesn't share. She is the mother of all. We can see that the names Adam gives his wife are not impositions, they're recognitions. It's because God spoke first that Adam can speak truthfully. His names are amens, agreeing uh, with what is so. And yet, they do add something. And this is where my son's printer skipped a page. So I've got to go over to my notes here and work with what I've got here. Um, let's see. The ability to acknowledge and name the meaning of things we, uh, by the ability to acknowledge and name the meaning of things, it makes it possible for us to communicate objective value. But our words uh, can bring uh, that value to the surface and even perfect it. So Adam's words are masterful, but it's a mastery that begins with humility. He acknowledges what's been done or has been said, submits to it, and then elaborates upon it. Uh, Perhaps ironically, when it comes to politics, the conviction that human beings don't have the first word is the basis for democracy the word uh... the world i'm I'm sorry i I meant to say the world is a wordy place uh... but it doesn't speak to our desires but instead it uh, speaks to the wisdom of its creator because god's wisdom orders things no one has a right to contradict god's order one of the implications of this is our rights as we see in the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. People don't necessarily agree at any given time about what's in the best interest of a democracy. That's why they debate with each other, again using words. Uh, And they shouldn't do it merely to defeat their opponents They should do it in order to find the common interest and the common good for a community. And it's through words that a a democracy makes a common life possible. It's idealistic, you could say, but it's not quixotic. At least our founding fathers didn't believe so. Now, let's see if I can go back to my other notes. Um, So when it comes to Now, we're informed that democracy has existed in various cultures around the world, and that shouldn't surprise us since it's our common human nature that makes democracy possible. Even so, it was the Greeks who gave us the philosophical basis for our democracy. It's not a appreciated fact that the Greek doctrine of the logos and the biblical record of the world's being spoken into existence essentially say the same thing the Apostle John even declared that the Son of God is the Lagos, the one through whom all things came into being. For the f- Church Fathers, though, the Lagos wasn't a thing. It was a person. Um, but uh, So this insight helps us understand that the world communicates reasons for the way things are. Let me, let me go back and and read again. again, getting back to my comment earlier about things being a little choppy. It's an underappreciated fact that the Greek doctrine of the logos and the biblical record of the world being spoken into existence essentially say the same thing. Just to remind you, logos means word. So in the beginning was the word, John chapter 1. But it also means reason. And it's this insight that helps us to understand that the world communicates reasons to us for the way things are. It's this insight that helps us to understand that the world communicates, re- uh, it's, but those words are, uh, but whose word are we talking about here? That wasn't altogether clear in antiquity. It was the apostle John who declared that the Son of God is the Lagos, the one through whom all things came into being and the reason why things are as they are. This means our ability to understand and our ability to speak are inextricably connected. But materialism has rejected the Lagos. And this is why, for all of its blather about reason, or their blather about reason, materialists have undermined reason. They've also undermined the basis of our constitutional order. So allow me to explain. Now, when we think about, whenever you have a conversation with, say, a materialist or an atheist, and they give you reasons why there can't be a god, the best way to simply respond is, give me your account of the origin and nature of reason. Where does it come from? What is it? This usually is greeted with a dumbfounded silence, because this is something that they just never think about. Literally, they just never think about it. They just take it for granted that it just is there. But why is it there? So if reason, let's just spend a little time thinking about this. If reason is merely the product of evolution and you know, an adaption to certain social conditions, then human beings are the most over-equipped uh, you know, sort of equipped, uh, creature in the world. In, a, in other words, just being able to eat and survive didn't lead to lions acquiring, you know, the powers that we enjoy when we use reason. So we're the most overcompensated of all creatures, and that's an odd thing. We can, you know, kind of rework the... So whereas other creatures are said to be adapted to their conditions, we can actually change the conditions to adapt to our needs. Why? Reason. So where does reason come from? Is it, if it's just simply an, adapt, an an adaptation to social, or sort of, sort of physical conditions, as I said, why does that mean that we should trust it, to tell us anything about, say, the nature of the cosmos? Generally, at this point, atheist materialists change the subject, because they really don't have an account. There's nothing they can say. Often when we read the Bible, we stunningly miss the point. This tends to be the case with, the, with Babel and its tower. It might have to do with children's Bibles, those colorful, boulderized treatments of biblical stories. Their Babel is used to explain why people in France talk so funny. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way, but that's the way I always thought about when I saw the Babel story, and, you know, as a kid in those Bibles. So that's why the French can't communicate to us, you know. <laughs> anyway, but there's a much more going up, much more going on, of course. But you can only see that if you accept this simple premise: that the Bible is more intelligent and subtle than we often give it credit for being. Here's how the story goes: Once upon a time, we all had a common language, and a common life. It was a politically and culturally unified world. But to what purpose was that unity directed? Toward two things, making a name and holding it all together. Admittedly, this is deeply appealing. Sometimes the dream is justified in this way. If we would just stop fighting and work together, think of what we might accomplish, right? Surprisingly, according to the story, the Lord God agrees. When he looks in and what uh... they were up to he says behold they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose will be impossible for them but rather than congratulate them he confuses their speech what we make of this says something about us if we write it off as jealousy we we not only demonstrate a lack of faith we reveal that we really believe that reality and life itself has another source than the Creator. It shows that we suspect that we're not creatures at all, that our lives and even the world itself is self-existing, without an origin or purpose. But if we believe that the whole Babel project was profoundly misguided, then we can see see God's judgment in a different light. It was a severe mercy. Think about it this way. If God is truly the source of everything, then attempts to fashion a reality without him are only going to end in death. In that case, confusing our speech was a way to make room for redemption and eternal life. What's generally overlooked in the Babel story though is the role of technology in the building of the tower. They make bricks as opposed to using stone, of course, but what I'm thinking about is how words become a kind of technology. Words went from communicating to the world as it is to a tool for turning the world into something different. But when a wrench got thrown into the machinery, things broke down. First, political unity broke down. Then, uh, the name that they made for themselves became a kind of joke. Babel now means meaningless nonsense. I think this is the way we use words today. We use them to control the world but they're not working as well as they used to. And that's because we no longer use them in the way that they were intended to be used. Usually the curse is assumed, meaning the curse of Babel, is assumed to have worked immediately, even magically. Perhaps, though, it works subtly and even inevitably. Sin tends to contain the seeds of its own destruction. When language is just another way to get what you want, people start to feel uneasy. They tend to wonder if the people doing the talking are taking advantage of them. Questions such as, who's in charge? And is it fair? Get asked. And disagreements inevitably arise. So perhaps the question Babel answers isn't, why do the French talk so funny? Maybe it's, why do the Democrats say the things that they do? Or the Republicans? or the communists, or the blacks, or the Native Americans, or whomever you disagree with. If my suspicion is correct, language breaks down when trust breaks down. This is because turning away from the reality outside of us inevitably means uh, turning towards something inside of us for guidance. I want to stop at this point and just see if there are any thoughts or comments or questions about what I've talked about to this point because I'm going to get into something that's going to seem almost completely different, but it actually does relate. Yeah? It sounds
0: there. like on that very last point you're saying that language uh, is both a cause and an effect. So, so language, the use of language wrongly caused a problem, and the result was a problem with language.
1: Yeah. That's exactly right. So, you know, right now we live in a world of intense distrust. No one trusts anybody. And um, because that's the case, people have turned away from, say, social standards or social conventions. Uh, They more or less write all that stuff off as oppressive. It's all intended to get me to do a certain, you know, behave a certain way so that somebody else benefits from my going along with things. And that's, we see that everywhere, you know, not just in the, you know, crazy places like higher education. <laughs> but We see it, you know, just in the course of our daily lives and it, it has to do with the, with the with this sense in that that we don't think of ourselves as living in a world that has already been spoken into being and we're hearing what it's saying. We think that it's just this blank canvas that we can paint in any way we wish uh, or it's an empty page that we can write on. and Then the question is who's holding the pen? And then we're fighting over the pen. Get my drift?
0: Seems like love is similar. You know, you, if you love wrongly, then things go so bad that things are unlovable, mm-hmm. and you love less. Yeah. So love is on both sides. Right? Yeah. Just like you're saying with words, if you use words wrongly, then things devolve, and then the impact is words are used even worse, or, mm-hmm. or with less trust.
1: Yeah. And so things just keep breaking down, and and. Um So, uh, the kind of the, the dream of a united world uh, is just not something we can pull off, which sets me up for the day of Pentecost. <laughs> which is actually, you know, the answer to the curse. So the title of my sermon this morning is the, you know the reverse, you know, the, the reverse of the curse. Originally, I got that from the Red Sox when they finally, you know, won the World Series, <laughs> but anyway, in case you don't know, there was a curse. <laughs> so, uh, any any other thoughts about? Sure. Like the modern day Babel, like the bank failures
2: in California and all that stuff, where chasing diversity and trying to satisfy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, you know, many of these large institutions are are acknowledging this lack of trust that exists and instead of trying to call people back to a single standard, they're just sort of like catering to everything, which seems to exasperate it's like throwing gasoline on the fire, making it worse. Yeah, right
2: of reminds me of uh, like Owen Barfield talked about how language the further so people talk about how it's getting worse. Well, that actually affects then how we view it. I think the example he uses this idea like the creation of the term prehistoric that now everybody thinks the same thing. When you say prehistoric, we think caveman. We think. Fred Flintstone, and and we have this, even the kids shows sort of took that. And so now we can't conceive of anything beyond that, but like what you're saying, I mean, you begin with, I mean, Adam is using language specifically and intelligently and purposefully, whereas now most people, even in the church, would probably just immediately think, well, there's, you know, caveman time, you know,
1: yeah, or they, they they might think that Adam didn't have any reason for naming things the way he did. It was just sort of an arbitrary I like the sat sound, you know, which is a very you know, long way away from how naming works in scripture. Um, you know, naming was really important because it was intended to give the community some insight into the nature of the person that you're uh, hearing about. So like you hear the name Jacob, then immediately you're thinking, "Watch out! This guy might be on the make," because <laughs> that's what the name meant, you know. Or Esau, you know, make sure that uh, you don't get into a fight with this guy because he might rip your head off. Because that's what it meant, you know. It meant this is a violent man. And then when when people have encounters with God, they're given new names because they're different because of that. So, uh, you know, Jacob becomes Israel. Because of an encounter with God that tra- transformed him. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of things going on with naming that we t- we tend to. Be- and then there's also a kind of onomatopoeia thing. If like you like to think about Isaac, um, Yitzhak, it actually sounds like laughter, and that's actually the, the, that's what it is. I mean, Yitzhak, Yik, Yik, you know, it's like Yik, 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 yik. You know, that's what. So Yitzhak would mean God laughs, Isaac. God laughs. So and uh, anyway, so this, this way of thinking about language is so utterly foreign to us. But this is one of the things that Tolkien was up to. Remember uh, the Ents and their language, how ponderous it was? Do you remember why it was so ponderous? Because every word was the history of the thing that was named. So it'd be like uh, you know, me, me talking about David. The man who was born on, you know, that'd be your name. (laughs) And I told your entire story, you know. grew up with this family and and this and this. And that was the name. That's why it took so long to say anything in Entish, because every word was like that. But what Tolkien was was meaning when he did that is he he was actually trying to give, you know, modern people some insight into the way language was used and formed in it, you know earlier times back when people actually believed that there was a, a world that we lived in that was spoken for already. So because you know when you when you hear the the, the phrase, you know, um, you know creation proclaims the glory of God or something of that effect. You know, we, we just think, oh that's just po- such a poetic way of saying things. And and what we mean by that is it's as meaningless as a Hallmark greeting card. You know, it's just fancy, flowery talk. We don't really, we don't really think creation speaks. Uh, we think, we speak, and uh, we're speaking for creation. We, we almost think of ourselves as Dr. Doolittle, I guess, you know, <laughs> like in the sense that the creation is moot, moot. Although Dr. Doolittle, he actually understood the animals. Maybe, so that's maybe a bad illustration because he could understand what they were saying. So creation speaks. It really, really speaks. Why does it speak? Because it was spoken. That's the insight. The Greeks and the Hebrews agreed. The world is spoken into being. And, that's, and, and reason is uh, wrapped up with that. So that you know, even to this day, we still have the vestiges of this conviction in the, the, the disciplines and how they're, they're named. So psychology, right? What is does logi it's it's derived from logos. It's the study of the soul. Psychology, study of the soul. Anytime you have logi, and and that's a the, you, know, the, you know, tagged onto the end of a discipline's name. That's what it literally is getting at: sociology, psychology, whatever. So we're trying to study the the nature of the thing. Let me go back to my talk here and take this in a direction uh, that might seem like it's not related. But remember what the thing I noted at the very end of that point, the first part of the chapter is, is because we've turned away from reality outside that inevitably we turn to something inside for guidance. So what's inside? Can we trust it? That's the question. Can we trust it? Once you've thrown out objective value, how can you hope to ever reason with people about what is truly valuable. Desire seems to be all we're left with. C.S. Lewis once said, when all that says it is good has been debunked, what says I want remains. But is it possible for us to all want the same things? Modern thinkers have gazed deeply into our drives and passions for answers. What they fished up, got wrapped into pseudo-scientific jargon. There's the usual suspects, Darwin, Marx, Freud, and so on. But let's begin with Freud, since he's something of a transitional figure. The zenith of his influence in popular culture was the 1950s. Everything from romantic comedy starring Rock Hudson and Doris Day to the psychological thrillers of Alfred Hitchcock seemed to take inspiration from him. But I think the best example of this is the science fiction film, Forbidden Planet. The story begins with an astonishingly, astonishingly clean-cut crew of Earthmen aboard a flying saucer heading to Altair Four to check in on an expedition that had landed there some 20 years prior. Before landing, though, Dr. Edward Morbius, does that name kind of indicate something to you? makes radio contact with them from the planet. He warns them not to land, and he tells them he cannot ensure their safety if they do so. Of course, the intrepid crew land anyway, and they soon discover that Dr. Morbius and his beautiful uh, daughter, Alteria, are the only survivors of the expedition. But they also learn that Dr. Morbius had us uncovered a vast underground machine that was built by an extinct civilization known as the Krell. Naturally the handsome commander of the spaceship develops a romantic interest in the beautiful daughter. This angers Dr. Morbius, and that night the crew is attacked by an invisible monster made of pure energy. We soon learn that the monster is the creation of Dr. Morbius's unconscious jealousy for his daughter. In his sleep his mind generates the monster with the help of the machine. It's the amplification of primal instincts by technology originally intended to confer godlike powers on the original inhabitants of the planet that led to the destruction of their civilization. And later, the deaths of all the other colonists that had accompanied Dr. Morbius and his daughter to Altair IV. In the end, the crew of the spaceship in Alteria managed to escape But before they do, their own medical doctor manages to use the machine. And in the process, he discovers that the machine isn't responsible for the monster. Instead, the monster was the creation of the id. Monsters from the id is what the doctor warns them of. The term id is straight from Freud. It refers to a hairy puddle of drives that surge incessantly beneath consciousness. The id can't be removed, merely sublimated or repressed. And this is achieved by a combination of social sanctions and self-control. Even though Freud was an atheist, he was a realist. He believed that repression makes civilization possible. Without it, the world would descend into chaos. We can overdo it, of course, and his doctrine of neurosis uh, is his theory of mental illness that, uh, for when that happens. But Freud didn't think a life without repression was possible or even desirable. In a way, he was a conservative in the tradition of Christian and classical teaching on the importance of self-control. But when it comes to what words are for uh, this is uh, what words are for, his conservatism begins to slip. We need to keep the "id" in check, but sometimes the "id" slips out, as with the notorious Freudian slip. Then there's psychoanalysis itself, a sort of confessional that Freud developed in which the mentally ill are encouraged to acknowledge their illicit desires and irrational fears. You can probably see the problem with this. Even though social norms are necessary, uh, but, because uh, but when they're not based on uh, transcendent truths, they lack the justification such norms require. And this is one of the reasons why it didn't take long for Freud's tragic sensibility to be replaced by something else. One of the reasons Freud seems so painfully out of date today is because we no longer fear the id. We just don't think that our darkest desires are all that bad. They're just misunderstood or unfairly represented. They shouldn't even be repressed. Instead, we should be proud of them. The slogan made popular by French hippies in 1968 is now conventional wisdom. It is forbidden to forbid. That was like graffiti in France during the riots in 1968. The patron saint of hippiedom must be Jean-Jacques Rousseau. But history is full of hippies, those unkempt champions of all things natural. Diogenes the cynic, the barrel philosopher who would defecate in public, he's an example. (laughs) Uh, And maybe even Saint Francis, you could say, was a kind of hippie, but a cleaner one. But the impulse is always the same. Whatever is spontaneous is natural and good. and Whatever inhibits it is bad. What we have here is the rejection of original sin, the Christian doctrine that you can't trust every impulse. In fact, some impulses are monstrously evil. Perhaps this seems a long way from Adam naming the animals. Not so, we're actually back where we started. When Adam fell, so did our ability to tell the truth about ourselves. It is now monstrously distorted. Two of the great writers of imaginative fiction in the 20th century proposed uh, contrasting theories concerning where monsters come from. I'm going to talk about H.P. Lovecraft and C.S. Lewis in a minute, but I want to stop here because there might be some questions about where I'm I'm gone. So what we saw with Freud, is essentially a secularized fallen man. His understanding of sort of we're in conflict with ourselves. Civilization requires a certain kind of conduct. Nevertheless beneath the surface there are these irrational powerful drives. Right? And who can deny it? So we have to control these things and suppress them. And The problem with that, of course, is that how do you justify that on the long term without God? You know, what is the basis for the criticism, besides maybe the utility of civil order? Any thoughts? Yeah.
2: People talk about Freud, Marx, and Darwin as a trio. And it seems like uh, God's creation story and the fall
0: are the truths that describe our experience. And if you want to do away with that, now you patch
2: together, you cobble together a Freudian idea of the conflict itself. A Marxist critique of, of, of you know,
0: and, and, and the Darwinian story about creation. Right. It's sort of a cobbled together and disjoint and self-contradictory.
1: And yeah. And it kind of gets back to my point about the Lagos. You know, there's, kind of, there's, a, there's a way in which reason is being used to envision a world without a creator and to try to understand why the conflicts occur and, and the nature of you know, the, the struggle that we face in, in, in life. But there's no real um, compelling ideal that uh, we seem to be able to craft for ourselves uh, that seems to, to uh, not end up making things worse. <laughs> you're you're going to get it. So you think about, you know, one of the things to remember is that Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao, Stalin, they all thought of themselves as humanitarians. They really did. They thought they were making the world a better place. They didn't like wake up one day and say, I want to destroy millions of people. They just thought that was the cost. This is how we pull it off. They wanted us all to be, you know, happy. <laughs> but in the in the end, in the end, we were all miserable. And you think about like transhumanism today. So transhumanism is the attempt to like transcend some of these limitations. If we were more godlike, meaning you know, more powerful, then we might be able to pull things off. Or if we were a creator god, like AI, who could make that possible, that would be a good thing to do. So anyway, this is this is all kind of in the background, but what I'm getting at here is that, okay, once we lose our con- a, a, a conviction that the world was spoken into being by, you know, and it reflects the wisdom of God, then we fall back upon ourselves and we turn inward for standards and guidance. And what we find inside of us is not all that pretty, and we have lots of evidence for it. This It's like, it's like uh, Chesterton said, uh, you know, nobody wants to believe in original sin but it's the only doctrine that we have empirical evidence for. <laughs> 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 we have all the evidence all around us, you know, what, what, you know, it's not hard to accept that people are fallen. But, uh, but we do have, you know, kind of a, a sense that, well, there's an attempt to, to say that we're not actually fallen. If we just let people have what they want, everything would be fine. But is that the case? I think we're discovering no. But we're having a hard time accepting that. So this actually gets me to the, to the question, where do monsters come from? So going back to C.S. Lewis and H.P. Lovecraft. They seem like an unlikely pair. Lewis was a literary giant in his own time celebrated, he was on the cover of Time Magazine for goodness sake, scholarly, an apologist for the Christian faith, and an Oxford Don. On the other hand, Lovecraft was a basement dweller, marginal in the extreme, lonely, an atheist whose poverty and health were so bad, he effectively starved to death. Yet Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos looms gigantic today, and Lovecraft can be said to rival Lewis when it comes to his continued influence on popular culture. Lovecraft's theory of monsters has been called cosmicism, and it runs as follows. Rather than being cradled by the providence of a benevolent God, we are in fact surrounded by an unfeeling and immeasurable cosmic void. If there, is, if there are other beings in it, they must be indifferent or even hostile to us. But the cosmic isn't merely a vast empty space. It is also immeasurably old And human beings are the product of an ancestry as alien and monstrous as any eldritch horror. In some of his stories, when the awful truth of human origins is revealed, it either drives the protagonist mad or he accepts his origins and becomes a monster himself. Where do monsters come from? Well, for Lovecraft, it's kind of getting back to your roots. (laughs) We are monsters. Lewis's take on monsters is an odd blend of Rousseau, Lovecraft, and Freud, but with this fundamental difference. According to Lewis, originally, we really were close to Rousseau's ideal of unfallen innocence. But something corrupted us. It wasn't civilization, like Rousseau thought. Instead, it was a catastrophe at the beginning of human history. And as a result, we are actually closer to Lovecraft's monsters or Freud's monsters from the id than to Rousseau's unfallen man. Now the monster within suppresses the truth about itself. The good news is that we're not left without a witness when it comes to naming the monsters. One of the witnesses is our conscience. It continually reminds us of the way things were supposed to be as well as our failure to live the way we know we should. Another is the natural law. And then, of course, there's the law in tablets of stone given at Sinai. Now, a good social environment can also serve as a witness. But in our time, social institutions now side with the monster. And things fall apart. Meaning of, the meaning of words, and the communities that we live in are falling apart. We imagine ourselves as gods brooding, brooding over the waters, calling into being things that will never be. Instead of Narcissus admiring himself, what arises from the waters is the monster we've become. Yeats recognized him. He describes his coming in his poem, The Second Coming, turning and turning in a wide, widening gyre The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Just look at TikTok to see what that looks like. Surely some revelation is at hand, Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming, hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with the lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds the darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. It was written, I believe in like 1907 or something like that, right before World War I, the Depression. World War II. So it's sort of like when you think about, or when people talk about the crash, you know, the subprime mortgage crash in 2008, and everybody pretends like no one saw it coming. A lot of people saw it coming. It's just no one listened to them. I saw it coming. (laughs) I sold everything. So I got out while the getting was good. And, you know, we find ourselves in such a time there is a lot, you know, portentous, uh, a lot of portents that we can attend to and think about. Um, now, this is just one chapter in a much larger, you know, book. The chapter that follows this is propaganda. So this is intended to help, understand, help sort of give a picture, uh, or create a picture, present a picture of why uh, words have become what they've become, tools for getting your way. And, the way you want isn't necessarily a good thing. So any any thoughts or questions about any of that? Those cheerful reflections? <laughs> yeah, Darren. The idea
0: of man speaking second is really profound. Uh, obviously profound is the way God made the world. I think it was our own brother Jason Cherry wrote a church blog entry maybe nine months ago about how to be creative. Uh huh. And I'll loosely paraphrase it, as I recall, but Contrary to what the world says, creativity is originality or a fresh new idea. Um, he argued that uh, creativity is uh, comes from an understanding of history and of what has gone before you, and that's the only way to be creative. And that's consistent with what you're saying that yeah. that Adam can speak truth because God spoke first. Um, anyway, all these things kind of are gelling together as I hear. It's very good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Another great. Uh... Kind of image to to use is uh, Tolkien's subcreation. So, if you ever get a chance, have a chance to read his essay uh, on fairy stories, he goes into what human creativity is and how it works. Another another person is, is George MacDonald. Uh, he was very good on the subject of creativity, as as was uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He was uh, a very good, um, you know. Uh, th- he was very good when it came to the subject of, of creativity, but what you have with uh, Tolkien, he says, basically, uh, human beings don't actually create nouns and verbs. Basically, our method is adjectives. <laughs> so uh, when you're talking about nouns, you're talking about you know talking about things, real things, you know, stuffing out of nothing, right? But you can use a noun in an adjectival way or you can, you can do things where you are modif- modifying certain things. Like if we were to say the terrible green moon, I think that's actually how he, and it, it, what he, de- he uses it as an illustration. You know, have you ever seen a green moon? You're describing a green moon. No, actually, you know, it's something that m- might be possible if there's a forest fire or something. <laughs> but the idea is that there's something that, that green evokes. When we, when we think about green, well, let's just think about green. You know, what are all the ways that we uh, kind of associate green with meaning? Envy. I'm sorry? Envy. Yeah, envy. There's, there's kind of a sickness, kind of a moral sickness. We say you're looking kind of green. You can also be referring to a physical sickness. But also it's got a little ambiguity in the sense that when we say the greening of the world, we're thinking of something positive, think of life, that kind of thing. So it's, 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 it's got a range. And uh, when you hear the term the green moon, uh, you know, there's a kind of, it evokes a kind of mood because it's odd and you're bringing things together that aren't actually things observed in nature. It's a sub-created thing. You're creating something out of the things that have already been given. So, you know, can that be done in a good way? Or also could it be done in a bad way? You know, your subcreation can be both. You know, you can you can do good or good things or bad things with, with it, when we when we subcreate. Um, and so words are always going to be tools. I didn't mean to imply, and I probably should, you know, refine what I said, uh, because when it comes to the, the creative work that we do, there is a kind of tool nature to the language we use. We use them as, as you would use a tool um, to help you kind of identify and control and so forth. And that's not necessarily all bad, but there has to be a limit. There has to be a sense this far, no further. You know, there's a sense in which. So provide further background for the book, so early on in the book, I go into the nature of knowledge. So I talk about Baconian science, and basically knowledge is power. When you understand knowledge as power, then power becomes the measure of knowledge. But is that always the case? If that is the case, then why would anybody want to be known? It, it's an invitation to being controlled, right? So what do you do? You, you, you try to hide. You know, uh, what is Facebook up to? It wants to know all about you. Why? because it just loves you with an unconditional love. (laughs) No, it's because it's going to take that information and sell it because knowledge is power and it needs to hide behind the, you know, two-way mirror. You can see you, but you only see yourself. That's how social media works. So you're you're posing in front of there, doing all this kind of stuff to, to impress yourself and your friends. And then the people behind the glass are like writing stuff down. It's all machines. It's not. It's not like there's actually a human being there. But it's algorithms gathering information, right? And then they take it and they make a lot of money with it. They can do things with it. In fact, right now we're at a really weird. We're at a really weird spot. I was talking to a lawyer uh, because of the way AI works. It needs data to create, basically, you know, kind of the stuff that. It's Is like the next market. So it needs images. So, you know, what what does AI want? It wants our our images. So it can create fictional characters or whatever, composite, whatever. Or you can actually, you know, think about it this way. Have you thought about why the the writers in Hollywood are on strike? It's that Uh, AI is a threat. It's a lot cheaper for the computer to write the movie script than a, than a person. Think about this. Imagine the year is 2050, and Marilyn Monroe has a new film coming out. It looks just like her. You'd, you'd swear she was alive. She was still 25. That's what AI can do. It's got all the data, you know, to create a new film with. Marilyn Monroe, her voice, everything. So what do you own? You know, um, how did I get there? That's creepy. <laughs> but, that, but that's kind of what we're, what we're dealing with, knowledge is power, it's power to, to sort of deceive to, 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 the, to these different things. What time do we have to finish up? Am I done already? Okay, I'm done. All right, well, let's pray. Lord, uh, there, there are some significant things that we're trying to understand and know how to respond to. We pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom. Help us to be like the sons of Issachar and know the times and know what Israel should do. In Christ's name, amen.
0: Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com That's trinityreformedkirk.com